Well, um, we've been going through the book of Philippians on the various things that make us happy with God or that stand in the way of us being happy with God. And this text fits in so perfectly with the theme that we've been going through. I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. The text actually appears behind me and also on page 6 of your bulletin. So if you follow along with your eyes while I read, it's from Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Uh, When will I be happy with God when I'm free to do whatever I want? Okay. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Let's pray. Father, we ask uh, that you would open our understanding of this passage in a way that really transforms our thinking and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Also in your bulletin is an outline so that you can follow along, and it's on page 7. And the outline simply starts off with the problem, or our desires, the problem, the lie, and then the fulfillment. Uh, So let's start with the problem, because uh, desire is a natural an inevitable part of the human condition. Uh, It's defined this way, a longing or craving as for something that brings satisfaction or enjoyment. As long as we are human beings, we cannot escape having desires. And that means that we are either trying to have our desires satisfied, enjoying the satisfaction of our desires, or wondering why our desires cannot be satisfied. We may be singing like the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, God does not have longings or desires in in the sense that you and I think of them, nor does he seek satisfaction or enjoyment. And that's because God is self-existent and eternal. He is entirely sufficient unto himself. He is eternally satisfied and joyful in himself. Uh, Put another way, satisfaction and joy are not things that God aspires to or seeks to attain. Joy and satisfaction are expressions of the very nature of God. They do not exist apart from God. They are part of his very being. Um, So, now we are made in God's image and likeness. God's nature is reflected in our nature 
And this is true whether or not we are Christians. Uh, my wife introduced me to this wonderful passage from Ecclesiastes, which is her favorite book. It's from chapter 3, verse 11 of Ecclesiastes, and it says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That is, we long for something other than the earthly and the material. We want something, not just something that we leave behind us, but we want to be part of this something that is greater than we are, that has no beginning and no end. And we express it sometimes in weird and self-serving ways, like the uh, singer Rudy Valley, who lived in the L.A. area, tried to convince the, um, the city council for Los Angeles to designate one street Rue de Valley. <laughs> and they declined, obviously. But it's this, it, that arose from this desire. He, he, I know in his mind he's thinking, I know I'm going to die, but he did this in the later part of his life. I want to be remembered. I want something, since I won't last, that will last beyond me. Well, naming a street after you doesn't really solve the problem or having a statue made in your honor given the existence of pigeons also <laughs> doesn't solve the problem. Uh, Adam's fall has uh, uh, made a real problem for us. Now, I'm hoping that there are people in the audience who are not Christians, who maybe have not read the Bible and you've come with questions and maybe even objections and and so when I go through this text I don't want you to feel uh, isolated or that these issues won't be dealt with I'm glad that you're here and glad that you have questions so when I say Adam's fall I'm actually talking about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before uh, the transgression with whatever uh, this fruit was. Now, Adam's fall has had a consequence for us of polluting all our desires. The fall pollutes all our desires. As a result, we have five huge problems where our desires are concerned. First, we live in a dual fear. The dual fear is this. This life is all there is. But I call it dual because it has a flip side, and the flip side is this life is not all there is, and I'm going to be accountable to some higher power for how I have lived. Well, the second huge problem for us is our desires tend to lead us away from God. Not to God, but away from God. Our third problem is that we tend to believe that we can find joy and satisfaction apart from God, independently of God. That without any consideration of God in our lives, our obligations to him or our relationship with him, we can find satisfaction and joy. The fourth problem with our desires, thanks to our forefather Adam, is that we tend to want the wrong things. And the fifth problem is that we tend to make idols 
of the things we strongly desire, even if they are in themselves right things. We may make idols of our families or idols of our career or idols of our success or whatever, or our sports team. We make idols of the things we desire. So that's our problem. But going on to the second part of the outline, looking at our desires, we, we've looked briefly at what our problems are. And, uh, and I want to warn you, although I've gone quickly through the first point, I don't want you to get the comfort of believing that this is a really short sermon. <laughs> so I'm warning you now, it's not really a short sermon. It's that section was just short. Well, the second issue is since we have a problem, we're also confronted with the lie. And let me tell you, here's the lie. I'll be happy when my desires are satisfied. Let me repeat that. I'll be happy when my desires are satisfied. Or put it differently, I'll be happy when I can do whatever I want. Um... The world says that true freedom is the freedom to do whatever you want. Uh, But the Bible in our own practical experience, you don't have to know anything about the Bible. You don't have to believe the Bible to know that that proposition is full of fallacy. Our practical experience and the Bible happen to teach some things the same. Number one, all our worldly desires will never be fully satisfied. Practical experience. You don't know anything about the Bible to know from practical experience that all our worldly desires will never be fully satisfied. I remember reading an article about the wealthiest man in Europe 20 years ago. He owned, this is beyond my imagination, he owned 30,000 apartments in Europe. And his own apartment was a block long on the top floor of a building he owned. And they went and found him one day. He had hanged himself from a chandelier. Well, the second thing that practical life experience in the Bible teach is that our worldly desires can easily become a form of enslavement. So here's what uh, Paul says in verse 19 of of our text. For as I have told you before, and now again say with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is in their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So let me just give you some practical examples of people I consider culturally uh, or otherwise significant. Uh, Kurt Cobain, leader of a great rock band, a voice that was tremendous. It was the, he was the lead singer of the world's biggest rock band of the 90s and also a lifelong heroin addict. He had wanted all his life to be a rock star. But when he became a rock star, he realized that he could not handle the success. And one day secluded himself in his sprawling Washington estate, 
and overdosed on heroin and it was it was adjudged to be a self-inflicted suicide through an overdose uh, so his desire for success had only become a form of slavery that ended in his destruction river phoenix this was a brilliant young actor like james dean he had a, a meteoric rise to stardom and a devastating drug addiction that would eventually kill him before he reached the age of 25. Elvis Presley. Um, all of you know about Elvis Presley. He grew up in this really uh, sort of Bible-oriented home, but he had the desire to be successful. He wanted to be a new kind of rock star out of the South, and he was. His legend has survived him and it's grown even larger and he dies from an overdose of prescription medications and in our most recent history Michael Jackson well let me turn to another desire this is one uh, because we can easily say you know I've never really been into drugs and none of that really attracted me anyway but let me try something that's a little closer to home, sex. Oh, okay. Um, sex, a natural human desire. And yet it can turn into an addictive enslavement for people. The actor David Duchovny checked himself into a clinic for sex addiction. Eric Benet married... Halle Berry, one of the most beautiful women on the planet, and he couldn't stop seeking sex from other women, and so he checked himself into a clinic for sex addic addiction. Billy Bob Thornton, married to Angelina Jolie, she was so enraptured by this guy that she tattooed his name on her neck. And he has sex with all these groupies running around. And he, he, what does he do? Has to check himself into a clinic for sex addiction. And, of course, Charlie Sheen on Two and a Half Men. Same problem. Well, how about body image and performance? Uh, Heidi Guttner was a ballet dancer who struggled with anorexia for years after being advised by her ballet company to lose five pounds. She was considered a brilliant dancer. And at the age of 22, she died from complications arising from anorexia. Nadia Comaneci, who won 10, or I'm sorry, nine Olympic gold medals, she was incredible if you are old enough to remember her performing in the Olympics. Despite all her fame as a gymnast, she struggled with both anorexia and bulimia. She had to check into a clinic and go through treatment to overcome uh, this problem, the desire for success to have a certain body image to perform at a certain level. And we see that today in other athletes in baseball. Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, Big Poppy all share steroid abuse problems 
because they want to maintain a high level of professional performance. They have become enslaved to a problem that impairs their health and threatens to ruin their careers. When Alex Rodriguez was paid $120 million, the biggest contract in baseball history at the time, he said it spurred him to take drugs, steroids, because he had to keep his performance up. And I thought, well, just get paid $20 million and don't take drugs. But I guess that's a simplistic approach on my part. Some of you may remember Lyle Alzado. He was one of the great uh, NFL uh, players. He was a defensive tackle and lineman for a number of different teams. He died of brain uh, cancer, brain lymphoma, which he attributed uh, in 1992 to his abuse of steroids. He was only 43 when he died, and he did the steroids because of his desire to be a preeminent defensive football player. He couldn't stop his drug abuse because his desire to perform had enslaved him. We look at money. I, I have a friend in Northern California, his name is Ed, and Ed had retired as the financial manager for people with high net worth. In order to be his client, you had to have a net worth of $50 million. Dana and I were his clients for approximately, in fact, I guess we never were his clients, <laughs> now that I think of it. <laughs> but I remember sitting down with him, and he, and he said, Bill, you know, I, uh, I have a client who is typical of my other clients. His net worth right now is $200 million. And I asked him, what will it take to make you happy? And he said, if I can just get a net worth of $250 million, I'll be happy. Um, recently, in our own San Diego history, I was reading uh, the newspaper about a lawyer whom I knew here in San Diego. Never had any cases with him. His name was Tim McNeil seen him all around the town for the past 20 years. We would always say hello to each other. His practice was different from mine. But you may recall this in the news. In 2007, his 20-year-old uh, stepdaughter, Bray, and her then 20-year-old stepbrother, Hanson, conspired to murder him so that they could get the insurance proceeds. Their mother had died several years earlier. They, they, they wanted the money, and they came up with this cockamamie story and of course they were arrested and they've just been sentenced to life imprisonment. We, we can go on with example after example. You may know people from your own life. You've certainly seen this in the news over your life of having a desire that gets out of control so that the desire has you. You are in the grip of something stronger, more stubborn, and very hateful of you. The desire cares nothing about your well-being. It is, it is an evil slave master who wants only one thing, your destruction. I remember Gar Garth Brooks had this song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayer. 
And I just want to read a little bit of the lyrics, you know, if you have a desire for a person. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read the lyrics. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. And I, as I introduced them, the past came back to me, and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one I'd wanted for all times, and each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he doesn't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. <laughs> I can remember the weekend that I met Dana. The weekend that I met Dana. I was in Los Angeles on a Friday, and I was trying to put this move, these, these moves on a young woman who rebuffed me. And because of her rebuff, I came down to San Diego and met the woman of my life. And I, years later, I was driving on Market Avenue, and I saw the woman. And I had the strongest urge to stop the car and say, remember me? Thank you. But I thought, maybe I shouldn't do that. And when I recounted the story to Dana, she said, oh, you didn't say anything, did you? I said, no. She said, Whew. I started out this section by, uh, by saying that the world believes that true freedom is the freedom to do whatever we want. And I've tried to give you some uh, examples to show that that freedom is really just slavery with another name. So we've seen this, this problem that we have desires and we can't escape them. And, and we implicitly in our hearts without any reference to the Bible know that there's a lie in the proposition that we'll be happy when all our wor worldly desires are satisfied or when we are finally able to do whatever we want. Now the Bible teaches us that, but life experience teaches us that. So where are we then? I mean, we're left with the fact that we have desires, and yet all I've done basically is dump on you about these desires so that you're probably afraid to walk out and want anything and again. So how do we experience true fulfillment and freedom? So let me put on just a little bit more bad news before I turn to the good news. From Romans 6, the Bible tells us that all people are slaves. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So the Bible tells us that there are two types of slavery. You can be a slave to sin or you can be a slave to God. 
The one leads to destruction. The one leads to heaven. The one leads to unfulfillment and frustration. The one leads to satisfaction and fulfillment. You get to choose. You don't get to choose whether you will be a slave. But you do get to choose to whom you will serve as a slave. So... um, Let me um, give you a short civics lesson about Roman citizenship. But I want to go and I want to read just a little passage from 2 Corinthians as a prelude to this. 2 Corinthians first, chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So citizenship in Rome was very rare. Only about 1% of the population were actually citizens of Rome. And among the privileges of citizenship were the right to vote, the ability to appeal to Caesar if you uh, thought you were being treated uh, unfairly. This is what Paul did when he was under arrest. And remember in the story in Acts when he said he had been beaten and when he said, I am a citizen of Rome, the soldiers who beat him were scared to death. How did you get to be a citizen? This was such a rare thing. Sometimes you could get it uh, as a bribe. Sometimes it was given as a bribe, uh, citizenship. Now, I didn't say sometimes you bribed in order to become a citizen. Rather, I said that citizenship was sometimes given as a bribe. That is because Rome as a city was highly overcrowded. They wanted to get people to spread out into the outlying districts. How to do that? We will give you Roman citizenship. If you leave Rome take the values and principles of the Roman Empire and live them out in outlying areas. Such was Philippi. Philippi was one of these outlying areas. It had come under the Roman Empire and had been populated by a number of people who had received their citizenship with the obligation to move out of Rome and take the values and principles of Rome with them. So when Paul was writing to the Philippians that they had a new citizenship, it resonated with them. And what resonated with them were two things. The responsibility to move out and the responsibility to take the values and principles of Rome with them. But Paul is saying, you have a higher citizenship 
than the citizenship of Rome, but the same obligation to take, to move out and to take the values and principles of the kingdom of heaven with you. I love uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. How many of you have read Tolkien's trilogy? Great. How many of you have seen the movie even though you haven't read the book? Great. The movie is fantastic, but the books are even greater. And the third book in the trilogy is The Return of the King. And um, the author, Tolkien, had made um, a trilogy that is about the gospel. But he recognized that the character of Christ is so rich and so complex that no one person in the trilogy could encompass all that Christ means to us. So on the one hand, we have uh, Frodo Baggins, who represents the weakness of Christ, the way he come, he came as a weak man. That's why he allowed himself to be crucified. He became weak so that you and I could be strong. But there's also Prince Aragon, who represents the kingly nature of Christ. And because the king has not yet taken the throne, the land is under the influence of the evil Sauron in Mordor. But the hope is that the king will return, and when the king returns, everything wrong will be made right. The blighted areas will bloom again. Evil will be utterly removed from the land. The obligation of the people who lived on earth awaiting the king is to keep anticipating his arrival and live in the anticipation of his return. And so in the third book, in fact in all the books, but especially in the third book, there are three themes. Return, redemption, and restoration. Return, that's the king. Redemption, he would redeem the land, the animal, the people, and restore. And in this last great scene, the, the new city, like the new Jerusalem, which had been broken down and torn through war, had been restored to this beautiful structure. That's a picture of the new Jerusalem. It's also a picture of the church. Well, Paul is telling us that we need to look to Christ. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Jesus' return means for us return, redemption, and restoration. That return is evident in every single person who receives the salvation that Jesus offers. We get, we experience by that return. Now, I'm not trying to spiritualize this because Jesus will physically, bodily return to earth. He is going to restore the earth physically. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. But in the process of that coming and our waiting, you and I know and can experience his return when we receive him as Lord and Savior. 
And when he redeems us from our past life, we experience that redemption at the moment we receive Jesus as Savior. It is great that today we're having communion because this communion points us back to his, his first coming, our current redemption, and our hope for restoration, but it also points us to the fact that he will return. We are redeemed at the time we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are in a process of being restored. And that happens because Jesus took upon himself all the frustration, pain, hurt, and ugliness of our worldly desire. See, Paul said accurately that their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, their mind is on earthly things. So their glory is in their shame. I mean, we see that in somebody like Lyle or Alzado. It means dishonor or Kurt Cobain. And I don't hold these men up to ridicule them or make light of them. When I read these stories, I get so sad. I wonder, was there, did they ever hear the gospel? Was, if... If the next time I'm on an airplane, I might be sitting next to a person like that. Don't just cuddle down with my book. Pray for the opportunity to share the gospel with a stranger, a co-worker, a neighbor. Well, when Paul wrote their destiny is their destruction, Paul and their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame, Paul was talking about us our destruction our shame and as the perfect man Jesus took upon himself our destruction and our shame and that is why he was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem in a public place where those who 24 hours later may have hailed Hosanna are now walking by and mocking him it was a shameful sight But moreover, Jesus, being God, put his spirit in every person who receives his salvation so that each person receives a new wanter. See, it says in verse 21, Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, Sometimes I think people read that who by the power that enables him to bring everything under our control or under your control. That's not what it's saying. Jesus brings everything under his control by giving us a new wanter. So let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. We will not be happy by having our worldly desires satisfied. We will only find complete and eternal satisfaction in Christ. Now, I am not saying that happiness, satisfaction, and fulfillment are things that Jesus gives. I'm saying that they are his very person, and we experience those as the person of Christ 
inhabits us through his spirit. You understand? It's not something that exists apart from Christ we have and then we run off with it like a new toy. We experience it as we experience Christ. We will be happy with God when he puts, when he puts in our hearts right desires which he then fully satisfies in himself. Every longing that we have is Christ. You want to be loved, that's in Christ. You want to be accepted for who you are, that's in Christ. You want to be free of physical problems or addictions or worries, all of that is in Christ. I have told you before about Big Mama. Big Mama was my maternal grandmother. And I still don't understand why we called her Big Mama because I, she was only like, I mean, literally, she was like four, what, Dana, four, four eleven. You know, and I'd had to, I'd bend down and say, yes, Big Mama. <laughs> but Big Mama used to make uh, a lemon pie. And she made it with a graham cracker crust. And I, don't, I tell you, I think she got this directly from heaven. It is the best dessert I've ever had in my life. And whenever I think of happy things, I think of Big Mama's lemon pie. And the way she made this pie involved both cooking and chilling it in the refrigerator. And when she was done uh, with the cooking part, it had to chill and set in the refrigerator for a couple of hours. And th- those hours seemed like weeks. But Big Mama would give me the bowl with a wooden spoon, and she'd let me take that wooden spoon around that bowl. And Big Mama didn't even mind when Billy put his head in the bowl. (laughs) When that spoon just couldn't get enough, she'd let me run my tongue. And I'd tell you, I'd come up and it'd be a a little circle around him. But that bowl was... uh, it, it told me what was coming. I, I didn't have the pie yet, but I had this stuff in the bowl that got me so excited about the pie that I just couldn't wait for it to chill and for Big Mama to bring it out and I'd have my first real slice. And that's what our salvation is for us that our God will return, he is redeeming us, and he will restore, and he gives us a lick of the bowl. He gives us that through fellowship with other believers. He gives us that through answered prayer. He gives us that through changing our desires. And and, And that lick is enough to get us excited about one day we're going to have the full pie I used to always be puzzled by the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And for the life of me, I didn't understand what that meant. And then I was an adult male before I understood that when you eat the pie, it's gone. But not with the richness we have in Jesus Christ. Because we are joint heirs with Christ of everything he owns in the universe, No matter how many bites we take, the pie never diminishes. No matter how many people who share in that bite, because I used to always worry that Cousin Juno and Lester would come up to the pie at the same time I did. And I had to tell you, 
I was awfully mean and deceptive when Big Mama's pie was issued. But see, with God, there is no pie that runs out or is diminished. We can get excited by you having a lick of that spoon or by you, Noel, or by anybody because it doesn't lessen the prospect of the pie we get to have. For though we live in eternity, we will never put a dent in it because Christ has all things for us. So let me give you two practical examples of how we kind of dip our fingers in this bowl and experience this restoration now as a link to what will happen through Christ's work. Because remember, it's what Christ brings under his control. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about Dana and me, and I have to tell you now, she always says, I get the story wrong. I can only tell you, this is how I remember it. So you go to Dana after the sermon and say, okay, let me hear your version. They basically agree, except in a couple of details. Dana used to be a chain smoker. I tried everything as a believer, and she was a believer, to get her to stop smoking. I bribed, I threatened, I cajoled. Everything was a complete dud. And one day she was about to light up a cigarette, and I was going to give a lecture. I think it was Lecture 73. Okay, Lecture 73. I just numbered them. I just say 73, and she knew what I was talking about. And, 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 and God told me, be quiet. Don't say anything pray. I mean, it was very clear. And so every day, I pray that God would take away Dana's desire for cigarettes. That he would do it. Because I didn't know what to pray. I said, what am I supposed to pray? And so God told me what to pray. And, and, and I prayed every day that he would take away her, his, her desire for prayer. And I added this. Cause her to prefer to eat worms than smoke a cigarette. I pray that, well, I'm telling you the truth. I prayed that every day for eight months. One day, Dana said to me, you haven't noticed. What? Notice what? I haven't smoked in two weeks. Now, I'm praying every day for God to work, and I'm missing the answer he has provided. I know you don't do that, but I'm giving myself as an example of a foolish Christian, okay? So... She has stopped, and I'm celebrating. She stopped smoking, all right? Sometime later, and this may have been a couple of years later, Dana said to me, you know, I almost got tempted by a, a cigarette today. She said, but I was thinking I'd rather eat a worm than smoke a cigarette. I had never, ever told her what I would be, was praying because that God told me to be quiet on the subject but see it is a transformed it wasn't Dana having the discipline to stop smoking you understand what I'm saying it is Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control you with me so sports illustrated swimsuit edition I know you men don't know anything about it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a magazine that comes out once a year, and they have all these good-looking women in these scanty uh, swimsuits. Now, do you guys know what I'm talking about when I describe that? 
See, they still don't know. Okay. Well, I used to, man, I've always subscribed to Sports Illustrated. When the swimsuit edition came, man, I was on it like a duck on a June bug. And then I realized, both through Dana's words and through the Spirit of God, that this was offensive to Dana. And I, I didn't, I mean, I had been doing this for a long time without realizing that it was offensive to God, it was offensive to Dana. But I liked the swimsuit edition. So what do I do? I say, God, I can't, you take the desire away. By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. I didn't have control on the issue. So I just went to God and I said, Jesus, would you please take away the desire? And he did. Last little story. Just trying to bring home what Christ does. Before I was a believer, I was walking through my house one day and Dana and our son were out. It was a Saturday and I was praying. I found myself on my knees praying and I never prayed. But I prayed this prayer. Lord, I don't even know if you exist. But I do know. I don't like to go to church. I don't like to read the Bible. I don't like to sing hymns. And I don't like to hang with Christians. But I do love to play squash, which is a game sort of like racquetball. If you are who you say you are, make me love these things more than I love to play squash. See, I played squash with a passion, not because it made me healthy. I just loved it. Well, I got up off my knees and I felt like an idiot. I never told Dana about this prayer when it happened. But an amazing thing occurred. Two weeks later, at 2.30 or 2.15 in the morning, while Dana was sleeping on a Saturday morning, God woke me up and saved me. The day before, if you had asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, of course. Why are you a Christian? I don't murder people and I don't rape. But when he saved me at 2.30 on a Saturday morning, I instantly understood through his spirit that I was a sinner that my sins had separated me from God and there was nothing I could do to breach the gap my sins had created. That Jesus did that for me when he died on the cross. And I just began sobbing like a baby. It was the first time I ever understood that Jesus died for me. And when I stopped crying 20 minutes later, I knew that I was saved. Now, I didn't, I didn't, I'm using words that I didn't know then, okay? But I knew that Jesus had somehow come into my life and made me different. He had transformed me. He had changed my wanter. And I found myself loving to go to church, loving to read the Bible, loving to sing hymns, and loving to hang with Christians. Because, Bill, no. Because Christ brought everything under his control. I don't know where you are with any problems in your life, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's fear, whether it's defensiveness, whether it's sarcasm. It's something that you know you don't want. And your self-discipline has not been successful. And there are two problems with the self-discipline. If through self-discipline you accomplish it, you pat yourself on the back and you think you're pretty good. If your self-discipline fails, then you beat yourself up about it. 
both have the consequence of separating you from God and separating you from others. On the one hand, you think you're better than others because you overcame the problem. On the other hand, you think you're worse because you're still trapped. The answer is, it is not you. It is Jesus. When will you be happy with God? When you confess, God, I'm not happy with you. But I want you to change my wanter. I want to see in Jesus the fulfillment of all right desires. I want you, Jesus, to put in me the desires that I should have, but I just can't come up with it. Let's pray. Uh, and just a, a, a quick note. It, you can come on up, Steve. Uh, and the worship team, you can come on in. We're going to have a prayer team outside. But also, we have Stephen Cooper. We have my wife, Dana. Wave your hand, Dana. Candace, wave your hand. Linda, wave your hand. If uh, Charlie, wave your hand. If, if you have not received Jesus Christ and you want to do that, go talk to the prayer team or one of the people that I've just, whose hand is just, and talk to them. Just talk. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is in his person the fulfillment of everything we want. Amen.